Our first message this afternoon is for Mr. Fred. <laughs> I knew a guy named Fred Nolan, I'm sorry. Mr. Reg Nolan. <laughs> I will get the title correct. It is Thorn in the Flesh. Reg. Okay. In Second uh, Corinthians 12, 5 through 10, the Apostle Paul alludes to a persistent problem that he has, which he is calling a thorn in the flesh. I always thought it was thorn in the side, but when I looked it up on the, in Scripture, it's thorn in the flesh. Given to him as a messenger of Satan to buffet him, lest he become haughty. Imagine Paul haughty. Uh, let's read the passage. Here's the passage, all right? Uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 5 through 10. I will glory of such a one, yet I, let me get uh, yet I will not boast on my behalf, except in my weaknesses. For if I desire to boast, I shall not be, I shall not be foolish, for I will speak the truth. But I spare, lest anyone should think of me as being beyond what he sees or hears of me. And by these surpassing revelations, lest I be made haughty, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I be made haughty. For this thing I besought the Lord three times, that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power has made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather bear, I will rather glory in my weakness, that the power of Christ may overshadow me. Therefore, I am pleased in weakness, I am pleased in weaknesses and insults, in necessities, in persecutions, in distress for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am powerful. Now, I seriously doubt that this problem was a literal thorn in the flesh for which you could have surgically removed. Rather, I suspect that this, this thorn is a metaphor for some kind of weakness uh, that he has or some character flaw, some persistent sin that he could not overcome regardless of how many times he prayed to have it removed. Now, as powerful an influence as the Apostle Paul was, I can rarely ever identify with him. Uh, but on this one point, I know exactly where he's coming from. I know exactly where he's coming from. How often do we repeat the same prayer over and over and over again? Over again. Why? Uh, because, uh, because there's some particularly persistent sin that we're unable to conquer, try as we might to do so. Okay? I would never presume to uh, know your thoughts, your flaws, your faults, your foibles or sin. But I do know myself, and I know that I am fatally flawed, fatally flawed with the recurrent sins I should be able to conquer, but the evidence of history goes to the contrary. Despite my best efforts and intentions um, to repent and reform, I end up repeating the same things over and over and over again and having to ask for forgiveness over and over and over again. I tell you truly, it's discouraging not to be able to, to, to conquer these. It's almost to the point of despair. 
It's to the point of despair. And it's, it's not like there are any major crimes that I'm talking about here. I mean, I'm not planning grand larceny or mass murder or cheating on anybody. Rather, it's the simple but very human thing that I should be able to master, but apparently cannot. Apparently cannot. It's enough to make me want to give up and surrender to the absurdity at times. It's that little voice inside that says, you'll never make it. You're not good enough. Come on. Give up on being good. Surrender to the dark side. Can you relate? Can you relate? Let me give you an example. Intellectually, I well know the scripture forbids us from calling someone raka, a fool. Let's look at the passage on that. Matthew 5, uh, 21 to 22 says, You've heard it said, it is said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of the hell fire. Hmm. I know that. But it's so hard not to do so when they put so much effort into qualifying for the epithet. If I see someone doing something genuinely stupid, then in my heart and mind, I have already labeled him as the fool that he is. Verbalizing is just a formality. Uh, and now I have, and I have biblical precedent for doing so, since the Proverbs and the Ecclesiastes are filled with references not just to fools, but to stupid fools. So that's a fool among fools. It is particularly difficult for me as a teacher, and my fellow teachers out here can relate, I'm sure, uh, <clears throat> uh, since I have a plethora of candidates for that particular title. For example, Scantron test forms. You know what Scantron test forms are? They're the blue sheets that they fill out uh, this way. Are test registering forms that, for, that respond to answers in pencil only, responding to the graphite form of carbon in the pencil lead. Now, ink, in contrast, has no carbon in it at all. So it does not register on the Scantron form. Students have been using Scantron forms since at least fifth grade and should be familiar with this restriction. So when they fill out the Scantron form in uh, ink and then are surprised by the Scantron machine, give them a result of zero, all I can do is echo the words of Bill Ingvall and say, here's your sign. Here's your sign. Further, if the Scantron form is used to evaluate a true-false test, then the A responds to true, corresponds to true, the B corresponds to false. But you'd be surprised how many answers I get for C. You'd be surprised how many answers I get for C. How can I not recognize that as the response of a fool? How can I not? Okay, these people would, these are people who would not be in any danger in the case of a zombie apocalypse. May I have another sign, please? Okay. Now, Ken has given us now what we'll call the Barton mantra. We repeat often at our Tuesday night Bible study, and it is, you can't fix stupid. 
can't fix stupid. <laughs> okay. My only wiggle roy out of this conundrum is to, that the Bible, the passage cited in Matthew does not expressly prohibit us from calling anyone a fool, but just a brother. So maybe that's a wiggle way out. All right. A similar dilemma exists with the notion of hate. The spirit of anger is often, but not necessarily, a precursor to uh, the spirit of hate. And the spirit of hate is similar in kind to the spirit of murder. So we are in dangerous territory if we have anger issues. And I know several of us do. Okay. Um, the guy cuts you off on the highway. Or that sort of thing. How, how much restraint are you uh, exercising to keep from... Well, never mind. Uh, now there are some things that we are supposed to hate. Evil lies, injustice, hypocrisy, idolatry, immorality, uh, etc. But our ob- those sorts of things are the things that God hates. And our objects of hatred should mirror God's object of hatred. Our objects mir- of hatred should mirror God's object. However, generally human beings are not such objects. God doesn't hate individuals, generally speaking. Uh, here I'm treading on a very thin line. And I know it. This is personal now. I so strongly disagree with the character, values, decisions, judgment, or lack thereof, etc., of our current White House resident, that I become angry nearly to the point of rage whenever I hear what stupid thing he said today. <laughs> he said, did, tweeted. I hate that he can bring out the negative emotion to me. I hate that even more than what he did. That he can bring out that kind of response to me. This is the heart spirit against, the sixth, uh, against which the Sixth Commandment rails. Now, while the manifestations of this spirit are wide-ranging, generally, heart spirits like this of sin fall into two broad categories. There's a spirit of defiance, and there's a spirit of inordinate desire. And if such a spirit fills the heart, then we have already violated the corresponding commandment even before we've done anything. Luke uh, 6 45 tells us, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. And we see that all the time. It is no wonder then that Jeremiah warns us about the wickedness and deceptiveness of the heart in Jeremiah 17, uh, 9 and 10. The heart is deceitful above all things. We don't even know our own hearts. And desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart, and I test the mind, even to uh, give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doing. So, let's examine these two heart spirits in greater detail. The first one is the spirit of defiance. Let's consider that. Believe it or not, I was once a very rebellious man. Would you believe that? Uh, over the last few decades, though, I have become considerably more compliant, or at least less defiant. Uh, but there was a time when I would do the exact opposite of what I was told to do, not necessarily because I believed it was right. I just didn't like being told what, how to do something. I didn't like doing that. I was like Frank Sinatra or President, uh, former President Nixon who would say, I did it my way. I did it my way. The heart of this heart spirit of rebellion and self-will 
underlies the, uh, the violations of the first five Ten Commandments and the Ninth Commandment, and it often precipitates hatred. Let's look at those in particular. If we prioritize anything above God, then we have made a heart idol of that thing placed before God, violating both the first and the second commandment in the heart by defying the authority of God. While the third commandment was originally against taking God's name in vain, custom has expanded it to the misuse of the language and cursing and profanity. I think that the prolific use of profanity and swear words ubiquitously today uh, comes from that same spirit of defiance. You can't tell me I can't use that language. Just watch me. I'll show you I can't. It's a backlash against convention and decorum and a determination to be contrary, regardless of whomever it offends. Personally, I never cared for profanity. Uh, it is too, let's say, inexact for me. I consider it the medium for people who are too ignorant to express themselves otherwise. Well, see me judging again? Calling themselves fools? Um, further, I suspect that much of what passes for art and music today has its genesis in the same spirit of defiance and rebellion against convention and normality. That spirit may also contribute in part to lifestyle choices and the drug culture, but desire plays a major role in those as well. All these things I lump together as driving violations behind the third commandment. It's that spirit of defiance. Um, <clears throat> We need not comment on how defiance is a principal spirit behind aversion to keeping the true Sabbath, right? It seems that the religious humanity is intent on honoring any day except the one on which God has blessed his name and blessing. Okay. Ancient Israel got in trouble with God more often for idolatry and Sabbath breaking than for anything else. Uh, Indeed, it is, it is this world church system that surrounds us, the Sunday-keeping system, the, the others as well, um, is built upon defying the principles of the Word of God, especially that, uh, the day that he has made to commemorate the completion of, of creation. But even we Sabbath keepers, we push the envelope, don't we? We push the envelope, keeping an eye on the clock and the sunset on Friday evening, Asking ourselves, can I get just one more thing done before sunset? Aren't we doing that same thing? Okay. Clearly, defiance against the, um, defiance is the primary spirit that leads to dishonoring one's parent, parents. Indeed, it is the meme, if you will, to use the common term now, of adolescence. Instead of appreciating parental rules as constraints drawn from the wisdom of experience and designed to protect them, Children resent their parents' restrictions as bonds of tyranny to be broken. At that age, though, they don't have the wisdom to recognize the love that's being expressed or the restrictions for their own good. Some children defy their parents in an open and active manner, like fighting and arguing. Others do so more subtly, just ignoring any kind of parental restrictions and not raising a fuss. For those of you who are young uh, parents and haven't yet experienced that, you will. <laughs> you will. Okay. Defiance is also the heart spirit that violates the ninth commandment. Uh, that one against bearing false witness, that is to say, lying under oath. It is an attempt to deceive in defiance of authority and truth and has its origin in the original, in, in the original 
rebel Satan. Uh, John 8, uh, 42 to 47. Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I, brought, I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come up of myself, but of he who sent me. Why do, you not under, why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. What he murdered was the truth. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell you truth, you do, do, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who hears uh, he who is of God hears God's word. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. Mm. On August 1st, 2018, Washington Post reported that our current White House resident had uttered more than 4,620 untruths that were couched as misleading claims or false statements. This was a polite way of saying that he had lied an average of seven times per day in less than two years since he was sworn in. I think his lying rate now is up to 8.6 times per day. The brain, this is a citation from outside sources here I'm using. The brain's prefrontal cortex controls our lying behavior. It is also responsible for executive functioning such as self-control, awareness, planning, and truth-telling. Brains of individuals who lie excessively have 20% more neural fibers in the prefrontal cortex. The increased connectivity it suggests a greater ability to fabricate stories. Uh, functional MRI scans from the uh, amygdala, the region of the brain that's involved in processing emotions, show that the brain's response to telling a lie gets progressively weaker with each lie, even as the lies become more frequent and more complex. In other words, the brain adapts to dishonesty. The brain adapts to dishonesty. And lying becomes easier and less stressful. It seems that, that lying it turned out to be pretty natural. Imagine that. The spirit of desire. Now let us examine the spirit of desire in the, in the heart manifests itself in adultery and sexual lust or even in murder uh, and envy or desire for another property which leads to theft. Desire presents... I lost the page. Okay. Um, so let's talk about sexual lust first. This is the most common form. Sexual lust is probably the most obvious kind of inordinate desire. Have you noticed all the reports recently about the Catholic priest being brought up on charges of child sexual abuse, etc.? Have you noticed the ones from the, uh, uh, who was it, uh, this month? I can't remember. Uh, uh, celebrities being brought up on all these charges as well. Anyway, so God placed... God placed natural sexual desire in each of us to encourage the propagation of the species. Be fruitful and multiply, he says. Uh, it has four major purposes. Uh, to encourage, one, to encourage marriage and a stable environment in which to raise children. To create a bond between husband and wife to discourage the breakup of the marriage. 
to express love for the partner in a physical form and to provide a vehicle for ple uh, physical pleasure for the uh, couple. All these things are natural and good and deserve no reproach. However, problems arise when we feel desire for a person who is not the partner to whom we committed the rest of our lives. According to Jesus, lusting in the heart is tantamount to committing de facto adultery, even if one controls his actions and resists performing it. Go to Matthew 5, 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said to those of old, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery in his heart. So you might as well go ahead and do it, right? No. Because it is based upon a perversion of a natural God-instilled desire, this is probably one of the most difficult heart sins to overcome. By the time you realize that you're feeling it, oh, it's already too late. It's already too late. Now, Mr. Gregory has assured me that such feelings dissipate with age. I'm still waiting. Okay? I'm still waiting for that to start. I suspect that this is a uh, heart sin that we will have to contend with for as long as we are alive. Indeed, I suspect that it may have been Paul's thorn in the flesh since Paul was never married. We have no record of his being married. And we know he wasn't gay because of the, how much he rails against homosexuality in the process. All right, so this may have been uh, the thing that was bothering him. Today, this heart sin is quite difficult to overcome because the world around us is resplendent with sexuality. Indeed, fashions are specifically designed to accentuate one's sexuality, and the declining moral milieu does not discourage flaunting that sexuality. Consider Myrie Cyrus's twerking, for example. That's supposed to be a dance move. Doesn't look like a dance move. Okay. It's, pop, it's increasingly popular. Further, most commercials use sexuality to promote their product, often selling the sex appeal more than the product itself. Indeed, we have created a society of such heightened sexuality that it precipitates sex crimes, the most heinous of which is the child's sexual desire, which we are seeing in the, in the news right now. Here, innocent children are victims of a perverse heart, and the heart that wants what the heart wants. I who are these pedophiles or whatever, cannot help it. They are, the heart wants what the heart wants. Many of these child abusers are themselves victims of child abuse and are perpetuating the cycle. This kind of abuser is more likely to want power over someone than the actual sexual experience, since he has none himself. The, if the abuser is a genuine pedophile, he is incapable of maintaining a human love relationship with an adult, but is attracted to the innocence of children. And, and it is the innocence, the trust, the unconditional love of children that he is attracted to, because for many of those pedophiles, gender doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether it's a boy or a girl. They're attracted to the innocent. They're attracted to the innocent. Hmm. He is, he is really to be pitied in some way, but still not excused. I want to make sure that he's, he's most pitiable. For he can never have a lasting love relationship since the objects of his affection will always grow up and cease to be of interest to him. 
So he's condemned to live a life alone. But by no means should he be excused for his behavior. Consider Jesus' warning to anyone who would harm a child. Mr. Williams, I think, brought this out last week, didn't you know? If I remember correctly. Then Jesus, uh, this is Matthew 18, 3 through 6. Jesus called to him a little child and set him in the midst of them um, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as these little children with all their innocence and their trust and unconditional love, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But whoso- and whosoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. But whosoever causes one of these little ones to, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and were drowned in the depths of the sea. If the heart, sin, heart spirit of desire is not turned away from people and toward objects, then it manifests in, in different forms. And, and avarice or greed or envy or gluttony or tyranny, uh, which in turn would lead to theft, coveting, and murder. People with this heart problem, and it is a heart problem, there's no angina here or anything of that nature, but it's a different kind of heart problem. People with this heart problem are often addicted to wealth or power for its own sake, never satisfied, always wanting more than they'll ever need. How can you wear 200 pairs of shoes? How can you drive a dozen cars or live in five different homes? I mean, I do good to try to keep up the one. Okay? These people are single-minded, always with an eye out for profit, and regardless of the means. Wealth has become his God. So he's violated the first commandment again. And the 289 Ferengi rules of acquisition are his Bible. He has no scruples about eliminating anything or anyone who gets in way of obtaining his goal. (coughs) He will steal. He will cheat, manipulate, or kill without conscience. He craves power, but is insecure. Living in fear that someone would do to him what he has done to others. Okay. He is often overweight, scarfing down his food, rapidly and guardedly paranoid lest someone take it from him. This is the mindset that we're talking about. Although he has more wealth than he can ever spend, he's extremely stingy, pinching every penny until Mr. Lincoln screams. Granted, this portrait is a bit extreme, I know that. I've taken deliberate, but it illustrates the spirit of the heart that is infected with the spirit of desire. But there is hope. There is hope. Do we understand the sin-sick heart, what it's like? It's a miserable existence. For if our hearts are filled with such spirits, then it is as if we had already committed the sin in action as well as in thought. But... Don't, don't, um, this is not permission to commit the sin in action. As Paul said, God forbid. For a sin in action hurts someone else as well. There is some consolation here that at least the sin in heart does not hurt the other person, hurts only the sinner, but not the victim. However, we can benefit from the heart sin if, like Paul, <coughs> we become alert to our shortcomings and work to overcome them. Aware that we may never do so. We're never going to overcome them all. This awareness will keep us humble and remind us that we are still human. 
That's our biggest flaw. We're human. And, we're, and our heart is not going to change until we as human beings change into the spirit being. As long as we are still human, still carnal. Romans 8, 6 to 8. For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Contrast the life of life and peace with the miserable life of existence with these people who have this sick heart. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We must learn to see our heart spirit, as James did, as a blessing in disguise. Uh, James 1, 12-15 Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for he has been approved. He will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one of us, uh, each, each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desire and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Let us also not surrender to the voices of despair, the voices of the devil, whispering to us of our weak worthlessness, prodding us to give up on trying and, live, and trying to live righteously, in trying to get us to destroy ourselves. His whole intent is to get us to destroy ourselves, and he'll do anything he can to help us do it. Rather, let us take solace in a Savior who knows our frailties. Hebrews 4, um, 14 to 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to, uh, to help in this time of need. This is the grace that Paul was referring to earlier. Being aware of the vulnerabilities of our heart helps us to know that any kind of righteousness that we may have comes from the grace of God, not from anything that we have, not from our own worthiness. None of us are worthy of this gift that we have received. Rather, it is a gift of love, valuable beyond measure. So stop, stop trying to qualify for a gift. Stop trying to pay for a gift. Just accept it in the spirit of love in which it was given. If we were to sit down and talk with one another openly and honestly, I think we'd all discover that we have a similar problem. We all have similar problems. But we can take comfort in the graciousness of our Savior, who has promised not to give us more than we can bear. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, the final scripture. No temptation has overtaken you uh, except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with temptation will also make you make a way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. How heavy was that crown of thorns?